Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkoff, your host here in New York City. Joining me from Washington, D.C., we have Mika Oyang, Vice President for National Security Studies at third way. And we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And of course, we are here. I feel like we're living inside of a washing machine or something like that, tumbled around in each news cycle, a little bit disoriented. Um, But one of the things that's striking to me about this news cycle, Mika, is that while there's a heavy focus on the political, there is a heavy focus on national security stuff at the center of this, about the U.S. relationship with Ukraine and how do you conduct foreign policy? And was the president within his rights to conduct foreign policy this way um, with Russia? Because a lot of what the president has done with regard to Ukraine seems to be Russia influenced and with how the rest of the world will view us, not in light of impeachment or lack of impeachment, but just with 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 exercises like this and with the tantalizing possibility that there is a secret file someplace that has the secret notes to the embarrassing conversations the president has had with other world leaders. And, you know, they um, might be real uncomfortable if somehow American legal processes resulted in those files falling into the hands of Democrats on the Hill. Um, I'm when you have spent most of your career doing national security stuff as you have, I don't suppose you ever sort of saw the scenario where this ends up at the center of American politics. Um, no. And in fact, look, in the history of America, we have never had a president who has blurred foreign policy and his personal interests in a way that people even would talk about foreign emoluments, right? In the entire history of the nation, this is unprecedented. And so as a national security person, it's really jarring, it's hard to recognize that this is an individual who is so divorced from what the concept of national security is that he would behave in this way. And the system is obviously not designed to have a person who is not true to their oath of office sitting in the role of commander in chief. And we've always assumed that the commander in chief acts in the best interest of the nation. They act with rational basis. Um, They act on behalf of a nation that is bigger than themselves. And what you see here is someone who is not doing that at all. It's all about his personal political interest and the security of America and the security of Ukraine are both subservient to that political interest. It is it's shocking. And so all of the people who talk about the powers of the president and the ways in which they have their own latitude to conduct national security, 
Those are all true if the president is conducting national security in the best interest of the nation. But when you have someone at the very top like this who's not doing that, then the question is, how does the system hold him accountable? And we are seeing a triggering of the accountability systems with an urgency that we've never seen it happen before. Before I go to Ed, why do you think it's there's this urgency when there hasn't been? I mean, I would argue the Russia 2016 case is worse than the Ukraine case. Is it because the Ukraine case is, is more clear cut? So I think that there are a couple of things about the differences in the two, which is why the system has been slow to recognize the danger. I agree with you that Russia is actually a bigger national security threat than the Ukraine situation, just in terms of America standing in the world, the health of our country, our security relationships and all that. But the big differences here are that that was conduct done prior to him becoming president. It was unclear whether or not he was soliciting or the Russians were offering and he was just accepting, which is, I think, the sort of best case scenario that his defenders would put on it. Um, and I think that there's an argument to be made for a lot of the president's defenders that the American people knew this was who he was when they elected him and they elected him anyway. Um, so that he therefore has a mandate to do those things. Now, I personally very strongly disagree with all of that, but I think that it's very different than saying this is an abuse of office for his own personal political benefit while he's in office, as opposed to while he was a candidate, um, that he is holding up the national security policy-making apparatus and decisions as blessed by Congress um, in the interest of that personal political interest. That's very different than what he could do as a candidate. Um, and that there's a very clear consensus in the United States that we want to be helping Ukraine repel this Russian invasion. And he is playing games with that in a very different way. So um, from an abuse of the office perspective, it's different. He wasn't in office before, but now it's very clear he will use the office for his own purposes. You know, Ed, as, as Mika was talking there, one thing struck me, and that is when the Russia 2016 um, scandal broke, Trump then began to react in a very defensive way to anything that might imply there was such a scandal and over-embraced Russia. Um, uh, it, it, it was a kind of a strange pathology, but and 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 doubled down on denials and denials and denials, even when it didn't make sense, because he thought it was a threat to his legitimacy. And I'm wondering what the aftershocks of this particular event might be. What is it? What does it produce in the pre in a defensive president and how he conducts his foreign policy? over the course of the next couple of months when he's under more scrutiny, when people think he's not dealing fairly, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, we, we have already had one example, which is the president was, the, you know, this story broke and the president moved ahead and had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Zelensky um, uh, at, at the UN General Assembly. But over the course of the next couple of months, how do you think this real sort of American political crisis is going to affect how Trump conducts foreign policy? Um, you know, I guess the way to think about that is how would a normal president um, 
be, or, you know, a non-Trump in that office be responding to the situation. And I guess they'd be doing, we've talked about on earlier podcasts, um, what Bill Clinton did, which is trying to look like they're doing their normal job, like they're not being distracted um, by this impeachment and by these allegations and leaving it to surrogates and to staff and to war rooms um, to do the day-to-day impeachment stuff. Trump's not like that. He's his own war room. He's his own um, impeachment worst enemy. Um, he's, I very much doubt, going to sort of get into a wag of the dog situation. I mean, he's got, you know, the, Iran is the most obvious um, uh, incendiary potential of any of the conflicts around the world, or potential conflicts around the world at the moment. Uh, Trump has got himself into a situation where we're much closer to a potential conflict or an accidental or fog of a fog of war conflict than 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 we should be. But I don't think Trump's going to be yearning to start a war to divert things. I think, you know, he he has an understanding here, quite sort of visceral one, that wars of choice and and endless wars are going to be very very bad for his re-election. Um, so I think um, I, I think um, there's going to be interesting pressure on him to conclude a deal with China. Um, uh, but there might also be, because you can never really tell with Trump, um, an equal and opposite impulse to escalate things with China. If we're going to get a wag the dog um, situation, it might be on, on the trade war front um, rather than on the sort of kinetic military front. But my short answer to your question is I really don't know. All I know is that, um, and I really don't harbor any sort of deep suspicions here, um, other than to, to observe what we've all observed, which is that Trump has become more Trumpian um, in the last few days. His Twitter id has been even more deranged and even more unbound than it was before. And that makes him, that makes him, even needier, even more desperately self-pitying, even more prone to bullying, threatening, lashing out, which are two sides of the same coin, self-pitying and bullying. Um, and that, that could have all kinds of unforeseen consequences in many areas, including foreign policy. If I were, if I were a counterpart to Trump, if I was Xi Jinping and I was waiting for a call to come in through him, uh, from him, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't take it. I mean, I would find some way to say let 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 uh, let our underlings deal with this issue. Um, partly because Trump's in such an unhinged frame frame of mind, but partly also because yeah, these conversations are going to be subpoenaed. Uh, I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, I do have an idea of what the Supreme Court will, will will say about that. It'll probably rule in favor of executive privilege. But I would I would be really, really even more wary than normal of having any recorded conversations with the president of the United States right now. By the way, there there there. Just to interject, there are there's some evidence that that what you're saying is right. There's an interesting story in the New Yorker right now um, by Robin Wright about an effort by Macron last week to bring uh, Trump into conversation with Rouhani uh, and literally got to the point where the call was set up and the line was open and the Iranians and the and Trump backed away from it. Neither neither party followed through with it. Um, uh, you, you, you may want to follow up on this, uh, Miko. I, I want to ask you a question on top of it, though, and that is you have a lot of experience on the Hill and it seems 
to me that this um, highly classified code word uh, server that they've set up, which contains some Putin conversations and some MBS conversations reportedly, um, are is is going to be of high degree of interest. And Ed brought up this issue issue of subpoenas. Based on your experience, how likely is it that anybody will ever see what's in that well that Trump has been throwing these memos down? Uh, I think it's possible that these memos will eventually make its way to the Hill and that at least the staff on Hipsy will see them. I mean, I think there is going to be a fight with the executive branch over releasing them. But having released the first memo of the telephone conversation, I think they have a hard time arguing that they should hold back the other ones. They don't get to pick and choose and only release the exculpatory ones. Having released one, the entire category should be fair game. Um, and at least they put them into this classified server as opposed to trying to destroy all the records. They're trying to destroy all the records. That's also a violation of various federal laws um, and obstruction. But I think that uh, there's a decent chance that Congress will be able to get copies of the other transcripts. Um, they may have a limited distribution, but that's fine. But to go back to the point about what foreign governments are going to do, I mean, it's been very clear from the beginning that the president is very transactional and that he is quid pro quo about everything. He does nothing out of any kind of altruism for the other party, that it all has some benefit to him, either financially or politically. Um, and so if you're another country dealing with the president and you see these transcripts and you see what's been happening with Ukraine and you have anything at all it's on the line with America, you're thinking about what favors can I offer him either politically or financially to be able to continue to get the things that I want to get to further my own um, foreign policy aims. And that the president is very clearly accepting all bids on that. Give me an example of something you think might happen. So, for example, the Saudis are interested in acquiring um, nuclear energy technology from the United States. The president has gone to Saudi Arabia. His son-in-law has been interested in saving various real estate, distressed real estate properties that he's got around New York and seeking investment on those. Um, and the Saudis have a very large sovereign wealth fund. And you see inside the Trump administration very aggressive pushing for this um, Saudi advanced nuclear technology or this nuclear energy technology um, at the same time as the president's son-in-law is getting out from under a very, very bad lease terms on a property in New York. So you know, we don't have all the details on that, but that's the kind of thing where you could see a nation who has some foreign policy aim seeking to um, seeking to curry favor with the administration on other means to be able to help. Yeah, I think the other side of that coin, though, uh, Ed, you know, which ties to your comment about countries, you know, possibly keeping their powder dry is there there are a lot of relationships that have counted heavily on Trump, that have tried to do deals with Trump, that if Trump self-destructs are going to have a real problem, whether it's um, the Saudis or others in the Gulf or the Russians or the North Koreans or um, uh, 
you know, be, 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 you know, some, 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 some other marginal characters in the world, Erdogan, Duterte, others, uh, you know, it, it, it seems to Bolsonaro, it's, it seems to me that, you know, the, 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 the imminent departure of Trump could, could see a reversal in a bunch of relationships as, as the U.S. reacts against what they perceive to be the misconduct of foreign policy by this president. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was thinking, um, well, as both of you were talking, I was thinking about um, <laughs> uh, getting getting my hands on uh, Jared Kushner's WhatsApp account and just having a look at what he and MBS have been talking about, uh, let alone, you know, getting to Trump um, Trump calls with his father or indeed with him. Um, MBS, as, as you both know, um, uh, famously said that he had Jared Kushner in his pocket. Um, I'd like to know more about that. I don't know how easy it is to uh, subpoena um, WhatsApp messages or indeed to sort of retrieve them if they've been deleted. Um, but Saudi Arabia is by by far the most obvious um, country that should be nervous about a change of administration. Um, there are plenty. Uh, there are plenty of um, uh, and by change of administration, I mean Pence. I don't mean, you know, Democrat. I just mean not Trump. That's change of administration. Um, uh, I'd put Saudi Arabia top of that list. It's the most personalized, familiarly interconnected um, of all the Trump um, transactional quid pro quo relationships. Russia, of course, has got to be a very close second on that list. It was fascinating, you know, to see the Kremlin's... Um, um, warnings um, not to release the transcripts of uh, any phone calls between between Putin um, and Trump. Um, we, we've talked before about the interpreters um, um, at um, Trump's one-to-one meetings with, with Putin. Um, I'd be fascinated to see how easy it would be to subpoena them on the Hill. I imagine that's possible. Um, but uh, the, the story here is not between you know, a, a Republican president and whoever might replace him as a Democratic president in twenty in in January twenty twenty one is between Trump and any other conceivable person in that office. You know, whether it's Tom Cotton or Mike Pence uh, on the right, or you know Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders on the left. It, Trump is in a category of his own, and these relationships are transactional, which is a euphemism for corrupt. Um, they're unique to Trump. And there's going to be a lot of very, very nervous, um, very, very nervous regimes out there, starting with Saudi Arabia and Russia, but going down a very long list. Mika, again, going back to your perspective from having had a lot of experience on the Hill, um, again, I don't think anybody expected that, you know, the, the, the fate of a president would um you know, be be in the hands of the hipsy, but but in this case it is. But it's not just a president. There are other people who were involved in just even this narrow Ukraine case. Rudy Giuliani is mentioned in the whistleblower's memo. Um, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo is mentioned there. Who do, who do you think may end up being the collateral damage here? Um. Collateral damage or cooperating witness? I feel like that's really the question. Well, it could, could go either way. In other words, when Nixon went down, Nixon ended up not going to jail. But a lot of people around Nixon went to jail. 
And the question is, is this analogous? Are there people at risk here? Or do you think the tide may turn? They're going to look at the polls. Um, you know, the, 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 there is much more support today, right at the moment we're recording this, for impeaching President Trump than there was for, for um, either impeaching Bill Clinton um, by a factor of about 50% more, or by for impeaching uh, Richard Nixon by a factor of 200% more. Um, so it's, 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 we're in a different place. Yeah, I think that's true politically. The president was much, President Trump was far less popular than either of those two presidents even coming into the scandal. Look, I think that he could try and give, you know, make Rudy Giuliani the fall guy for this. But it's sort of hard when he has said he's his own best advisor and he keeps firing people and nobody wants to go down for him. You saw already Bolton saying, I thought this was a bad idea and I was trying to stop it. Um, you know, I think that he there aren't many people who are going to be Trump loyalists who would take a bullet for this guy. Um, so I don't know that there is anybody. I mean, there are people who could go down, but it's not like Nixon where, you know, you could put it on other people. Um, well, it's it's it, it'll be interesting to watch how this unfolds. And it looks like it's going to unfold um, fairly uh, quickly, Ed, you were just overseas. What What's the reaction overseas to this development? Uh, so I I was um, I got back from um, Paris and London conferences in Paris and London the week before last. So you, the Ukraine gate, if, if you like, was beginning to break then, but we hadn't got to the really dramatic moment you know, where um, Pelosi declares um, the, the beginning of the impeachment inquiry and um, Trump then the following day releases the transcript and the whistleblowers report and Joseph McGuire and all that. The real drama happened last week. And, you know, oddly enough, it hit um, uh, exactly the same week, UN General Assembly week um, in New York, um, that Boris Johnson um, had to return from early because of the Supreme Court's 11-0 unanimous ruling against his prorogation of parliament. Um, so there's a sense in the English-speaking world, um, transatlantic English-speaking world, that we've got once again this extraordinary affinity and parallels between the fate of populists and populism on both sides of the Atlantic. They seem to sort of track each other closely. Um, we, we would uh, and I speak, you know, for, for, for other people rather than because I'm here in Washington. But the British would be, I think, considerably more gripped um, by what's happening in D.C. were it not for the fact that the wheels are rapidly going off British democracy and British institutional democracy in particular um, um, back there at the same time. Um, that's a whole nother subject, the affinity between our two political cultures. Um, but I, I, I would guess the world is as gripped, almost as gripped as as we are by this. This is this is an epic, this is an epic moment, and it's going to be a prolonged one. By the way, congratulations to all of your brethren in the UK for keeping up, because I mean Boris, at every turn, when you just when you thought Trump was going to pull ahead of him as as the the worst leader in this two horse race. Boris does something, you know, terrible or um, laughable, 
that keeps him in the contest, whether it was the Supreme Court ruling or now being up on police charges for some sleazy relationship that he's got and it, with, an, with an American technology woman. Technology lessons, please. He was having technology lessons. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, uh, Mika, where, where, d- d- first of all, Briefly, and then I've got a follow-up question. How do you think Schiff managed the hearing last week? Do you think the Democrats actually have their arms around how you conduct an impeachment inquiry that can actually have a successful result, or no? So I think Adam Smith's, or sorry, Adam Schiff's questioning uh, was superb. Right when he actually is there to elicit information from a witness. I thought he did a really good job. I, I heard a lot of grumbling about the way that he framed the hearing at the beginning. And, you know, I think he's stronger when he sticks to the facts. I thought it was a little weird, but, you know, what really mattered to me in this year in the hearing is what do you get out of the witnesses? And it's very clear Schiff gets more out of witnesses than just about anybody else. And so do the members of his committee. A lot of former prosecutors on that panel. Um, I think that they have a pretty good handle on how to gather the information that they need and what to do about it. Um, I think the harder question is how do you manage the politics of this? And it's very clear that Pelosi can get articles of impeachment out of the House. She's got a majority of people who will vote with her on this. And I wonder about some of these retiring Republicans, especially the national security Republicans. Um, But the removal of the president through a conviction in the Senate, I think, is a much harder political question. And I think in order to be able to convince traditional Republicans that this president is unfit for office, the House information gathering has to be quite thorough. And that it, even though people feel like we have enough information based on what the president has admitted to remove him from office, that his own transcript proves the allegations, I think that that's not enough. I think there has to be a significant amount of other information gathered in order to be able to try and show Republicans that this man has really abused his office. It is more than just the whistleblower, that there are reams of documentary and testimonial evidence on this. Um, And then the question is, are you really going to let the president of the United States abuse his office for personal political gain. Are we a country of one man or are we a country of all of us? And I think that's the bigger question. Just following up on Mika's question, how do you think the Democrats have handled it so far? And do you see any signs of changes that suggest to you that they may be more successful going forward? I'm encouraged by what Pelosi said. Look, this isn't about politics. We have to talk about principle. We have to sort of channel our inner Barbara Jordan, if you like, and talk about the the higher principles involved here. And I'm encouraged, um, uh, you know, by by the fact she wants to focus it narrowly on the national security um, aspect of this and not have a Christmas tree kind of process where everybody's picking their favorite emolument. that said, you know, the, the, the chair that matters most is Gerald Nadler, and I don't rate, to be frank, Nadler as high as I do Adam Schiff. Um, I, I just think Schiff is, uh, he's a former prosecutor, he's a more, I, I just think he's a more credible and, you know, likable um, chair. Uh, and 
so I hope that you know he's he's very much going to front this. Um, I also hope that there's going to be for some of the key testimonials a pragmatic decision to allow the questioning to be done by an attorney um, rather than having everybody getting their two minutes of, of fame because there's just no way you can marshal a disciplined line of questioning in which you build on and deepen previous answers to previous questioners um, when you've got these sort of large um, committees um, of people doing the questioning, particularly um, you know, particularly when you're um, uh, when you've got such uneven quality. Um, so I hope that that kind of pragmatic decision, which will bruise some egos, um, can be made. But of course, ultimately, this is going to rest on what kind of material can they get. And this does boil down, I think, to what we've been talking about on on this podcast: the transcripts of conversations with other leaders. We didn't mention um, we didn't mention Xi Jinping. Um, Trump conversations, but actually those are potentially the most uh, um, the most explosive of all, because Trump has been, you know, a- alleging that Biden's son made money out of China too, um, not not just out of Ukraine, and um, Trump would have wanted information uh, about that trip um, uh, that Hunter Biden took with uh, Joe Biden on Air Force Two, and it's totally conceivable that um, during conversations with Xi, Trump has offered all kinds of things which would put Ukraine into the shade, such as Huawei um, being taken off the, um, the the excluded list and so forth. Uh, it's, it's ultimately going to rest on that kind of material becoming available. Um, to assuage Ed's concerns about Chairman Nadler, while we were sitting here, um, the House Foreign Affairs Committee issued subpoenas to Rudy Giuliani for his text messages that he was waving around on television and is seeking depositions from three of his associates. What I find interesting about that is they scheduled depositions and those will likely be done behind closed doors, which means that you will get that kind of staff questioning of what's going on. Interestingly about this, the letter came from Schiff, Engel and Cummings and Nadler is not one of the chairman mentioned on here. That's very interesting. That's very it, interesting. It, it, it is. Thank, th- thanks, Ed. Let me ask one last question of Mika, because you touched on something, Ed touched on something that that I, I think is essential and really hasn't been discussed much, although I think Schiff gets it at the core. Um, and that is the Democrats, if they are going to have a chance to see justice done and Trump held accountable, are going to have to change the tone of the discussion. The tone of the discussion with Trump for the past um, almost uh, three years has been highly politicized, us versus them, um, uh, you know, shrill at times, um, but, but also petty at times. Uh, and it seems to me, and you made this point right at the end of what you were saying last, that you have to convey that this is something different, that there are constitutional principles at issues at issue here, that this, you know, that this has gravitas. I remember you're too young, but I remember I was in, you know, junior high, high school and I was watching the Watergate hearings and I was a nerd. So I was like, you know, pretending to be sick and, and, and watching it on TV. Um, 
and 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 you had a sense that of of national trauma, of high stakes, of big institutions, of the Constitution. And somehow the Democrats have got to be able to say, look, this is not about 2020 election. It's not about Joe Biden. It's not about is Donald Trump a good guy or bad guy. It's about the Constitution, the presidency, the rule of law, standards that we've had for 240 years, and et cetera. First of all, you may not agree with me, but 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 secondly, if you do, do you think we can get there? Do you think we can move to a phase that's somewhat more elevated and has somewhat more gravitas than a lot of what we've seen before? I think part of the challenge we have here is the way that this thing is covered and the shrillest voices get the most airtime, both on the right and the left. So you do have members who try to contextualize this and talk about the damage to the national security interest, right? Denny Heck has done a good job of this and with his questioning time. Um, you have people like Will Hurd um, and a few other Republicans talking about their concerns about this, but it gets drowned out in the noise. And I think one of the challenges we have is this is all happening in the middle of a Democratic primary where people are continuing to run to the left to try and um, fire up a base of supporters who will go out and and knock doors for them and the rest of that. Um, and people who, you know, who have a national grassroots fundraising appeal who make money by, or, you know, see their fundraising increase by stoking outrage and not coming back to a more um, measured, nonpartisan response on this. And so I think it is really challenging, but you have a lot of people on and who are focusing on that. And I think what's interesting about that is the trigger point for Pelosi actually calling for impeachment hearings was those seven um, Democrats from swing districts who said, this is bigger than politics. This is about national security. And that really changed the tone of the debate um, and people's concern and it changed the politics. And I think if the Democrats can stay focused on that, about what this means for all of us and not what this means for a particular election, um, then I think you have a much greater chance of persuading a majority of Americans that what the president has done here is outside the American tradition, is breaking faith with the Constitution, and is a real abuse of his office. Yeah. I, well, I th I th it's certainly going to involve broadening the tent and the type of critiques that we hear. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Mika. Thank you, Ed, for joining us. Uh, thank you, listeners, for joining us. We've got a lot of programming these weeks because there's so much happening, and we've had our Monday show, and this is our Wednesday show. Uh, tomorrow on our Thursday show, we've got, of course, Ryan Goodman, as we have every week. We also have Asha Rangappa and Harry Littman, um, and we may have a special guest from The Hill all joining us to carry on this discussion to the next level. Please join us for all of these things to stay up to date in what we're doing, to support what we're doing, to read some of the things that we've got out there. Go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, and uh, uh, you'll see a, a expanding roster of things coming from the DSR Network. Uh, we hope you do that. We hope you'll join us again for future episodes. And again, thank you, Mika. Thank you, Ed. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. 
Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.